I'll tell you why I can't find you. Every time I go out to your place, you gone fishing. Oh, you know. But there's a sign upon your door. Uh-huh. Gone fishing. I'm real gone, man. <laughs> you ain't working anymore. Could be. There's your whole Bing and Satchmo. <laughs> it was back in August that our resident historian and audio archaeologist... <laughs> Felix Bunnell put out the call for tapes of Cairo's old outdoor line show, which starred the late Bill Davis, because Bill's family did not have any audio record of his show. And I didn't think you're going to get any response. I mean, who sits around recording radio stations? Wait, what do you mean? Don't oh. except, except you and me. But uh, you got somebody. Yeah. Oh, by the way, yeah. Felix was brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. You got somebody. Yeah, here's a quick recap. It was uh, Outdoor Line was a Sunday night show about fishing and hunting, heard on Cairo for two decades, 1977 to 1997. Host was Bill Davis, who passed away 20 years ago. His grandson, Josh, had contacted me because the family had no tapes of the old show. Josh wanted to hear his grandpa again and wanted his kids, that's Bill Davis's great-grandkids, to hear someone they'd never met before. So we did the story back in August. I shared the link and a call-out for old tapes on a Facebook page called Seattle Vintage. That's where Craig Holman comes into the story. But if you fish in Puget Sound, particularly up near Bush Point on the Whidbey Island, where he ran a fishing resort, you may know Craig Holman better as Windmill. Now, Windmill's the name of a popular fishing spot off of Whidbey, and the nickname kind of stuck on Craig, too. Since I've been up there since I was knee-high to a Dungeness crab, a friend of mine goes, you're the windmill. And at that time, we were using CDs in our boats, and so we'd always call by our nicknames, you know, or our CB handles. And there's people that have known me for years, and they go, I never knew your first name was Craig. <laughs> <laughs> and so Craig, oh, excuse me, Windmill, saw the link to the story and read about the search for outdoor line audio. When I read that, it was like, whoa, I was on that show. I wonder if I still have the tapes. And I had replied to you saying, yeah, I was on the show. I should have tapes. I'll have to look for them. And I didn't have to scrounge very far because where I'm keeping all my videotapes and cassette tapes are in a drawer. And I opened it up, and there it was, Outdoor Line. So uh, Craig sent me those tapes. Uh, came in a big box right here to the radio station. Two had Outdoor Line audio from when he appeared as a guest talking about that Bush Point Resort. They're not complete shows. The audio quality isn't great, but they're good enough to give a sense of the folksy and soothing quality of Bill Davis and Outdoor Line, even if you never hunted or fished. We've had uh, the opportunity here on Outdoor Line several times throughout the winter to talk on the phone with a gentleman named Craig Holman from over at Bush Point Resort in Whidbey Island telling us about how good the beach fishery for steelhead has been over there this year. And, of course, the name Bush Point figured prominently in salmon fishermen's uh, good luck stories later on in the summer. And uh, managed to uh, prevail on uh, Craig and his partner, Dennis Keefe, to join us here on Outdoor Line this evening. I thought for a while when they were talking about a two-boat wait from the Clinton Ferry that they'd get here just in time for me to sign off, but they were wise and they came earlier. You guys have traveled from Whidbey Island before, right? You know it very well. Lane, come in a little bit closer to the mics here, guys. Craig and Dennis, <laughs> it's good to, good to have you aboard this evening and uh, looking forward to acquainting our listeners out there with all the things that are going on out of Bush Point Resort. It reminds me of the old Hank Williams tapes where he's selling some brand of flour in between picking the songs and stuff. It's just, it's just, uh-huh. a, it's just it's 20 years of that on Cairo. Every Sunday night. I still remember hearing it vividly. Anyway, I transferred Craig's tapes to digital, did a little bit of audio cleanup. I shared them with Bill Davis's grandson, Josh Linky. 
Then I got Josh and Windmill on the phone together. Josh said, Josh said it was incredibly special to hear his grandfather's voice again. It made his mom and his uncle cry. Now, this is Josh and Craig on the phone together. It was like an instant feeling as soon as I turned it on, started listening, like calming, peacefulness, because he just had this way of speaking. It was of that calming, you know, sentiment. Yes, he was very, he was very soft-spoken. Yeah, and my... Uh, my children, I played it for them. My oldest is 14, so for him to be able to hear that, for my other children to hear him, um, that was really special for me, and then for them to just get a connection to their, their great-grandfather. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, that's Windmill at the end there. Josh was really grateful to Cairo for doing the search and to Craig for sharing those tapes. He's going to make a digital scrapbook for the family to keep that audio around for his kids and for future generations. Now, I realize I have a really weird job doing stuff like this, but I sure love this job. I was sitting there on Tuesday doing this, putting this together, thinking like, wow, this is great. Bringing this family together with the yeah. old audio. and This guy in Whidbey had these old tapes. What a, what a fun thing. Anyway, um, I think we should have Bill Davis take us out with the close of the Outdoor Line show uh, from March of 1992. Well, again, fastest two hours of the week, and uh, gee, I wish we had some more time tonight where we could take some more calls and talk to uh, Craig and Dennis longer, but hey, we are out of time. Next week, the walleye gang is going to ride in here. Uh, yeah, we're going to have uh, Norm and Brian and Rome Hutchings. We're going to talk about uh, walleye fishing, so that'll be next Sunday night at 6.07. I'm Bill Davis. Thanks for joining me tonight. This is KIRO Seattle. Walleye gang's going to be here next week, Dave. We don't have enough discussion, enough talk shows that uh, <laughs> discuss the finer points of walleye fishing. Yeah, and in two hours, just the pace of it is so it's so unlike anything on the station anymore. I, I mean, it's just a different world, but it's really cool. That there's this little glimpse. If anyone has any old Cairo tapes, I would love to spend my my spare time converting these to digital to play these on the radio because there's we don't have a great collection. Radio is notoriously ignorant about its past. We have very little of our past here saved at the station. I have some stuff I recorded when I was a kid. Yeah, but I'd love to find more so email me or go to the text line send me whatever you have i would love to have old more old cairo stuff to play with like this so anyway. you know i have hundreds <laughs> i asked <laughs> you, you, you you've you always been them? cagey about it i know you've never no. really been kind of sort of vague about it so, I, yeah. I, I go through them slowly but a lot of them i really find embarrassing especially my own show <laughs> i'm not sure if i want to turn them over to you all right well we, we, we can talk yeah okay 647 Seattle's Morning News. Let's go live to Washington, D.C. now. And CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarland, who's been tracking the prosecutions over the January 6th attack. So uh, what is the latest? How many prosecutions do we have? And do you see any trends in, in their stories? I sure do. We're getting near 900. 900 federal defendants in the U.S. Capitol attack. That is the largest criminal prosecution in U.S. history. And it not the end. There could be many hundreds still to come. The Department of Justice has been unequivocal that there are more people in the Capitol they intend to find and to charge. What's more, they specify many of the people they're still pursuing for charges are accused of assaulting police that day, the higher level defendants. So in in some senses, we're just getting started. Um, One note, one trend is mostly in the misdemeanor cases, those who plead guilty to uh, you know, unlawful entry, disorderly conduct, unlawful parading, their prison terms are measured in weeks and months, not in years. But these higher level cases for assaulting police or conspiracy, that's where the longer sentences are coming down. Five years, seven years, ten years. And it sounds like a lot of the defendants are saying, I got caught up in the moment. So, uh, you know, what percentage of the 900 you speak about regret? what they did or show remorse 
It's interesting you ask that because the, when we go to the sentencing, when we go to all of them to listen to these defendants plead for mercy from the judges, they do express regret for being charged and for being part of a crime. They're very tepid in their words about Donald Trump. I haven't heard anybody dig into a harsh criticism of Donald Trump or of political leaders who may have inspired the movement to the Capitol and ultimately the riot. Um, there are many who tell the judges that they're concerned about what this has done to their families, to their jobs, to their Internet fame, for better and for worse, moving forward. They are now a Google problem away from being searched. But they don't really lean into regrets about their politics or whatever inspired them to go to the Capitol and get in. So they don't blame Trump, because that was the theme of the January 6th committee, which is that the president would be held responsible for basically inspiring this. But you're saying that the demonstrators themselves say, nope, it was my fault, my conduct was my fault, and I don't blame anybody else. And they tend to blame the mob and the others and saying they got you know dragged in or caught up or you know moved along with a crowd. But no, they're lukewarm at best in their criticism of the former president. Now, the judges will criticize Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. The prosecutors will do so. But the defendants haven't done so, and there's no indication that's going to change. So is there a sense now that the, the way to address this then is not so much to go after Donald Trump or, you know, anybody who tries a similar thing, but to boost security at the Capitol, that the problem here was, in fact, lack of adequate security. So when the Republicans talk about their plans for next year, if they take the majority, they say they want to continue the January 6th investigation of security failures Mm -hmm. of what happened that left the Capitol so vulnerable and unprepared for the attack. It would get rid of the rest of the January 6th committee, but they'll keep that threat going. The Capitol Police chief in a new message yesterday says they need more money. They need more officers. They need more agents. They have to be farther and wider. And the Paul Pelosi attack is just evidence of why that needs to happen sooner than later. But there's only a finite amount of resources. There's only so many police recruits in America, and they're going to be undermanned trying to cover all 50 states where all members of Congress exist and work and go out into the community near threats. What's the conversation like after the attack of of Nancy Pelosi's husband, especially among congressional members? We're seeing a lot of, you know, of course, we're in campaign season, so we see a lot of the candidates um, being lukewarm on condemning these attacks. And I'm wondering if behind the scenes it's a lot more more strict. And Democrats have been pretty clear. They would like to see a stronger denunciation by Republicans, not just of the violence itself, but of the election fraud claims, the baseless lies that may give rise and give energy to some of this threatening or attacking behavior. Um, There's an unambiguous concern for members of Congress, veterans, new members, Democrats, Republicans, that they are facing more threats than they used to, possibly by orders of magnitude. And that may dissuade some people from wanting to serve, to run for office. And they turn veteran lawmakers into retirees. They don't want to deal with this anymore. Um, but it's a threat that is growing. They also need to be aware of it. And on a completely different matter, any progress on ending the annual time change, which we've been trying to get here in Washington State for a while, where does that stand? As the father of two young kids, I'm glad you asked that question, because we circle this date on our calendar with dread every year. All right, so by this time next week, it may be daylight at this hour, uh, because they're going to shut the clocks back Sunday morning. The U.S. Senate, in a surprise move, by unanimous consent, 
voted earlier this year to make daylight saving time permanent, to make it a 12-month phenomenon, no more clock changing. So it's up to the U.S. House by the end of December to do the same. There's been some talk of jumping on board and making this change permanent, but they're running out of time. They're certainly running out of bandwidth, and I think the energy behind it has fizzled. So the clocks will keep a changing. CBS News Congressional Correspondent Scott McFarland. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Your daily dose of kindness sponsored by Baird. Hair loss is a tough battle for everyone, especially for young kids, though. And in some cases, that can be embarrassing. But there's a hairstylist hoping to change that and give kids their smile back. Tiffany Kalix has been doing hair for 14 years, but tells WWL-TV. After my third child, I started having the postpartum hair loss, right? So, um... It never stopped. And her own challenges inspired her to help others. When I got into this business, I didn't know how much hair loss actually affected people. I just knew how I felt about it. And her own challenges, as I said, helped her inspire other. Tiffany now makes wigs especially for children who have lost their hair because of medical reasons. Whatever hair loss you're going through, you're not alone. So many people go through it. So many women go through it. And it's actually very normal, but it's not normalized, which is what we're trying to do. The wigs are made with real hair. They're lightweight, natural looking. She styles them. And then once on... What do you think, Mom? Oh, the moment is life-changing. Children that are going through medical things like this, it's very, it just triggers you. And whenever I put the wig on them and they, their jaw drops because of how natural it looks, it just makes your heart feel a certain way. Tiffany says her work has just begun. She hopes to bring joy and confidence back one wig at a time. 7.48 and now from the Jean Ursula Show, G. Scott. And uh, you've been looking at this story from the uh, Everest yes. Yes. Herald. Yes. It involves a state house race in the 10th legislative district between Democrat Clyde Shavers and Republican Greg Gilday. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing's been thrown into turmoil because Shavers' father said that his own son is embellishing his qualifications. So the question comes up, uh, what's embellishment and what's just an outright lie? So mm-hmm. how do you see this? this? This is one of those where he put a little extra sauce on the rice. First of all, <laughs> come on, Clyde. Clyde, you can't be doing this. I always, this is 2022. Folks will find you out, including your daddy. And your daddy, go ahead and tell the people. So here's what happened. So obviously, the guy, obviously, he graduated from the Naval Academy. And once you do that, as someone who's understand, because I went to military school and all this stuff, you are commissioned, right? So he did. He was in the military. That is true. Everything's true so far. Now, what happened when my man started saying that he was uh, part of the nuclear program for eight years, according to the Ever Herald, and that was in on the website at first, and now it's not there anymore. When you say you're part of the nuclear program for eight years, and then his daddy says, well, he passed one of the tests. And then now it's see you, you can see that in 2015, he did not do those things. So he passed one of the three he passed tests. one of the three tests. Yeah. So. Was it a big lie? No. Was it a lie? Yes. And I'm going to tell you what my mama used to tell me all the time. Baby, a lie is a lie. 
Oh, yeah, is a lie, is a lie, is you, a lie. You, you yeah. know what I mean? You can't, because a lot of folks but, want to put colors okay, on that. Well, that that's dad, only a white lie, and dad, that's this color lie. Wouldn't you want to reach out to your son and be like, hey, I know we have political differences. His father is a Republican. He is running as a Democrat. His son, we have political differences. I notice you're embellishing. I feel uncomfortable about this. Our family's legacy is on the line. No, the dad reaches out to the campaign manager for his son's opponent and then composes a letter which was suggested in the phone call with the campaign manager that then spells all of this out, airing his family's dirty laundry rather than speaking directly to his son. Both of these individuals are doing wrong things here. Both of them are going about this family feud the wrong way and choosing shame rather than reconciliation. Okay. Well, I want to be clear on something. This is a story because Clyde lied. Right. I don't mean to rhyme that. Clyde lied. Period. Point blank. Now, as for what Daddy decided to do, going to the can- the other campaign of, of his opponent and doing that, Colleen, you know what? There's always family drama. I know. There's always some type of family drama. Sometimes things ain't perfect. I was talking to Chef and uh, Ursula this morning, and I told them, my, may my father, he's, may he rest in peace. My father would never, my father would go down with the ship when it comes to me. He would never do it. Mm-hmm. My mama? Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like there were political differences in this family because the dad was at the January 6th thing. And uh, apparently, he, big... and I double checked that. Yeah, he did travel to D.C., he told the Herald, but did not just to hear the former that, president speak. That was a and tour. March, that was a tour. That was place in the. Well, January 6th, according to what some people say, was just a tourist attraction, right? Yeah. 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 He said he didn't go inside the Capitol. Oh, okay. The father did not. Hey, you know what? I'm not going to. I'm not going to put this on the daddy. The daddy's name is Brett. I do want to say that I looked at the letter, right? And, and you guys, I know that when my parents they get up in age, they're really to the point, this was a long letter. So I wonder <laughs> if this letter, if Brett, the daddy, did that all on his own. I wonder if he had any type of help with this letter, because that letter's long. Dave, when's the last time you composed a letter <laughs> like that, Brett? That says, I am time. Clyde Shaver's father. I speak for both me and my wife regarding our son's political <laughs> campaign. That's how it starts. <laughs> That's how it starts. He clearly wants to tank his son's political campaign, and if he got some advice on how to do that, then, you know, he accepted it and wrote the letter. Anyway. But, 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 let me ask this. In the past, Dave, you've been in this game 40 plus years. Mm-hmm. Do you think that people have lied about their military stuff in the past? <laughs> Oh, sure. But if you're running for office, you're crazy. I mean, when I, I, when I ran, I went through every one of my commentaries to see every dumb thing I said just to make sure I was prepared if it was brought up. And, and something like this, it's it's crazy I, to lie about. I agree. Because no, no, it's I, so easy to check. I, I agree. I told Chef and those guys, I'm like, man, you can't lie in 2022. And he says... Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is one of those things. He needs to come out. Um, if I was Clyde, I would call Herschel Walker, call him up, and get <laughs> Herschel Walker's advice yeah. because Herschel, Herschel, Herschel's got a badge, mm-hmm. and he is a Keystone cop. <laughs> so if I'm Clyde, I call Herschel. What do I do, Clyde? I mean, what do I do, Herschel? And Herschel tell him, man, just come out there and just tell him. Not perfect. Don't tell him. Tell him that uh, I plan to help with gas prices and help with crime, and then it'll go away. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> G. Scott with Ursula at 9 o'clock. Are you going to run for News office Radio. one day, G? No! Oh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> 
We'll begin in Tacoma. At the start of the summer, the city faced a grim statistic. Violent crimes, including murder and assault, were rising. And I took a look back at some of our story archives to find multiple reports of shootings, many of them fatal. One report on July 22nd outlined the fact that for the third time that month, a child had been shot in Tacoma that had followed the fatal shooting of a 14-year-old who was just sitting in a car, the injury shooting of a 10-year-old child who was sleeping in her bed. Maybe some of these stories uh, you're starting to be reminded So the numbers were stacking up and so was the public outcry. So Tacoma police teamed up with criminologists at the University of Texas to implement and study hotspot policing, which has been studied in other cities as well and has been successful. Officers increase their presence in areas of the city where these violent crimes are occurring. The 90 day study period was up. It started in July and the city council got an update on the numbers last night. Violent crime was down about 37 percent in your treated area compared to the previous three months, and it was 12% lower than last year during that same period. Dr. Mike Smith is a criminologist at the University of Texas at San Antonio. To explain a little further, hotspot policing focuses on a 1,000-foot radius of 16 violence-prone locations, and those locations are adjusted every 90 days. For the locations chosen for this phase... Crime fell in every sector of the city at the treated addresses. It fell in all the catchment areas and it fell in all other areas of the sectors across the board. And he also had praise for Tacoma police. Fidelity to the plan was excellent at 92 percent. Your officers were there where they should have been 92 percent of the time. And that's that's really amazing. The second phase of the plan is happening right now. It's another 90-day period where either new locations are chosen based on crime data or some of the locations in phase one will stay on the hotspot list to keep improving those areas. Rotating your hotspots every 60 to 90 days can have a crime reduction impact beyond just the hotspots themselves. So that's really the goal. Yes, it's great that we're going to reduce violent crime at the address. I would be um, very disappointed if we didn't do that. But the larger goal is to reduce crime in areas beyond just those treated addresses. Again, in phase one, they saw that happening. The second phase will wrap up at the end of November, and we can expect an update at the start of the year. I don't know if they studied this, but is is there any possibility that, I mean, crime is traditionally up in the summer. They're comparing their new stats with what happened in July. Are they sure it's not just a seasonal thing? Good question. And they did address that at the city council meeting last night. He said, yes, of course, you can expect some variation with the colder weather months. Criminals uh, aren't outside as much committing those crimes. So they will um, account for those variations. But by and large, the, the way, the number, the percentage they saw this crime drop, it can't be um just because of okay. cold or other factors. Yeah. Six days before the election, do you know where your ballot is? Go fill it out and get it in. In a week, all of the political ads trying to frighten you about crime will suddenly end. What will we watch? In the meantime, several county sheriffs are urging voters to do their homework, and Cairo News Radio's Hannah Scott is here with more on that. Hello, Hannah. Good morning, Dave. Yes, we heard from uh, multiple sheriffs yesterday in the Washington State uh, Sheriff's Association, uh, Whatcom County Sheriff Bill Elfo among the speakers, and he said the primary issue they wanted to raise was about the election. 
Like everyone else uh, in this uh, election season, my box has been mailbox has been full of flyers from uh, candidates that uh, promote the, the support law and order, support law enforcement. And these are some of the people that have actually been in the anti-law enforcement or police reform marches of the 2020 uh, summer. Uh, you know, we've focused a lot on our discussions, educating the people of the profound impacts that followed the uh, changes in the laws as they affect uh, vehicle pursuits, use of force, Terry stops. But that's only scratching the surface of what the legislature has done uh, to create a culture of chaos, lawlessness and disorder in our state that's growing worse every day. So among the other concerns with the new laws are the changes in how we investigate crimes. Our, you know, juveniles in the state have committed some very heinous crimes from time to time, including murder. And now we're the only state in the country where we have to have an attorney present to interview the juvenile, despite the juvenile uh, consenting and their parents consenting to an interview. And that certainly limits our ability to uh, find out who commits crime and also limits our ability to get exculpatory evidence that could potentially uh uh, clear the juvenile or others that may be uh, charged with them. And then there is the revamping of independent investigations. The s- statutes that were enacted created an independent investigation authority under the governor that takes the, from my perspective, a constitutional issue uh, that uh, that allows the governor's office rather than our locally elected prosecuting attorneys to make determinations if an officer has used deadly force and whether it was appropriate or inappropriate under the law. And uh, we have our cops out there, our deputies, and I know police officers from our region are scared to do their job. They're scared of the power of the government coming down on them. So on this call, you had the Lewis County Sheriff, you had the Thurston County Sheriff, as well as Spokane County Sheriff Ozzy Knezovich, who pointed to a press conference that he held right after these laws were passed and took effect, actually, in July of 2021, uh, and the response he got at the time. What I received uh, back from that press conference was a massive amount of pushback from legislators that said sheriffs and chiefs are lying. They, none of this is going to happen. None of the, these laws are not going to affect our safety. They're not being truthful. I really had a hard time with that because not only did the politicians say that, but the media carried that story. Well, here we are roughly 16 months later and we have massive crime rise. And on top of that? We have situations where I cannot solve a homicide here locally because of certain laws that have been put put in place because we can't talk to to juveniles. We have situations where our violent crime is continuing to rise and we cannot pursue anybody that uh, commits a, a crime less than a violent crime and that violent crime, if you really understood the nature of that definition, Somebody can literally punch a police officer in the face, get in a vehicle, drive away, and we could not do anything about that. Knezovich also pointed to the national picture, specifically with what he called a record number of cops being killed last year. Why are so many police officers dying? You did it to us. You and the legislators that voted in these fashion put a target on your law enforcement and you have created an environment where they are being assassinated. 
and this is the most disgusting thing that I have ever seen, a politician, or quite frankly, the media do, to people that are guaranteed, that are, are very steadfastly committed to your safety. We're the ones that show up to save your lives. We're the ones that show up to save your children's lives. Now, and the, the narrative backdrop- you've pushed has put us all in risk. The backdrop to this press conference yesterday was uh, some comments that were made by Rep- uh, Democratic State Representative Jesse Johnson, who was one of the big drivers behind a lot of these laws, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the use of force laws. So sometime uh, several weeks back, uh, there was some criticism, a back and forth on uh, Twitter, where he said something about uh, to the effect of police that are upset with these laws are, are upset because they can't just go around killing people. So this right. uh, some of these sheriffs had already asked for a retraction for that, um, and they really, uh, he was, Knezovich was speaking kind of directly yeah. about that right there. So I got a chance to speak with Representative Johnson yesterday on the record. He didn't go on tape with me, but I can tell you what he said. He said he won't retract those comments. He said mm-hmm. that was a back and forth with a talk show host that had started. Uh, but as far as these police laws go, he stands by them. He says they made the changes that were necessary to be made, he felt, because there were some issues after the initial round, the first year that they were passed. Um, but he stands by the vehicle pursuit law. But he also stressed to me that, look, we were reacting to what we were hearing from the public at that time. If there's something else the public wants now, then I hope that the legislators moving forward will get everybody back to the table and work that out. It's so he says he's he says he's open to changing these laws now. Does he does he deny that they that that these changes did have a role in the increase in crime rate? Uh, he doesn't. I will say that he did say to me he he can see the possibility of the, the vehicular pursuit policies uh-huh. possibly leading to some of the crime. But he said it's you know not just that. He said there's uh, the pandemic and a lot of other things, a lot of uh, other factors that are that are into that, and it's going to take time to tease that all out. So he doesn't think it's fair to just blame all the new police laws. I want to point out that Representative Johnson announced at the end of the last session he is not running for re-election. He will no longer be a state lawmaker. He yeah. will continue to work in this space. Uh, I will also say he really stressed the importance of what he would like to see and something he wished they could have gotten to was changes in the prosecutorial scene, especially when we're talking about repeat offenders and these folks who are getting out over and over and over again. He also wishes this wouldn't play out on social media. He said the fact he said, unfortunately, a lot of the rhetoric surrounding these police laws, saying, which is untrue, he says, uh, about people just being able to you know walk away and things like that. He said because of all of that rhetoric and things that the media put out there and some of these sheriffs that in fact we did start seeing criminals believing that and actually running from police more because they thought that was true i see so, if it, so in other words the social media outcry became a, a self-fulfilling prophecy huh exactly and he he said uh, he regrets that he even had any part in engaging on the social media aspect he hopes everyone will come back to the table uh including these sheriffs who he points out did not come to the table in the last round um to to really try to find common ground and get to a solution all right hannah scott thank you hannah you bet This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. How to build wealth? A question we ask a lot. One way is to start a business, but it seems to be tougher for some groups than for others. And, of course, we're always asking why. So maybe this latest survey of entrepreneurs can tell us something. Let's talk to Lee Henderson, who is with the EY Entrepreneurs Access Network, EY standing for Ernst & Young, the uh, big accounting firm. So tell us, uh, what's the bottom line of your study? What did you find? 
The bottom line of the study, Dave, you think about the history of, of you know, black and Hispanic entrepreneurs and, and this group, I think we can say, is, has been fairly underrepresented. If you look behind the numbers, you kind of fast forward through everything that happened with entrepreneurs and businesses through the pandemic, through the, you know, social injustice focus years, I would say, of 2020. And, you know, we got to 21 and we wanted to just take a temperature check on these entrepreneurs and say, how have you guys fared and, and what do you feel? What's the sentiment? And what we found from the study um, overall is that it was quite encouraging in 21. I think a lot of the focus that we saw through 2020, businesses leaned in, consumers leaned in, investors leaned in. Uh, the outcome of that was, quite frankly, just um, sig more significant revenue growth um, in this community. It felt really, really good about um, about their business. What we've now seen since, we just conducted another study for 2022 and we said, now, how are you feeling? And what we what we were worried about and, and what we're seeing is some warning signs, which is the attention is sort of waning a bit. And as that tension wanes, this group of entrepreneurs, they're feeling a little bit anxious about how sustainable this um, this goodness that came out of the last couple of years is going to last. What is that a reflection of? Is it a reflection of that message of supporting these business owners is waning and so people forget? Or do you think it's more systemic in America? It's a mix of both, right? I think that naturally, I think we're, we're, we are all sort of wired for the moment at times. And, you know, when you have things that are as significant as, you know, the events of 2020, it got everyone's hairs up, right? We all sort of stood to, to, to the attention and leaned in because people, we're naturally good people, right? So we want to see like, what can we do about this? And I think naturally you kind of get back to your everyday, right? What was everyday like before 2019 and before 2020? So it is a little bit of just that everyone's getting back to the business and we haven't had a sustainable period of this. So it hasn't really been wired into us. So I think a little bit of that is what you're seeing. And I think, you know, to your point in terms of systemic, I think if you go back well before the, the attention years of the last few years, there's some systemic things that existed before that we need a sustainable period in terms of to really, you know, patch up that gap. So I think, you know, the key thing here, there's a couple of things that always pop in my head when I hear the question you just asked me, Colleen. One is we've got to be more intentional. We've just got to convert the awareness to action and just sort of move away from the awareness we kind of most of us get it now and really say, what can we actually do about it? Yeah, what can we do? First of all, as a consumer, we've got a lot of power right in our pockets and we've got to think about, are we really focused on this group? Are we are we as individuals making an impact by differential and intentionally focused on spending money with services and goods that support black and Hispanic entrepreneurs? The second piece of it is investors have a lot of power because capital has been lacking for entrepreneurs in general, but particularly for this group, social capital, but actually cash money as well. And we got a lot of angel investors, a lot of people with money in our communities and um, PEs, VCs, and they really have to look internally and say, do we really have the right people sitting around the decision making table that understand and is also as passionate as we need to be around this topic to make sure that we are doing some things to shake up the norm and differentially invest uh, dollars in, in these entrepreneurs? Because these entrepreneurs, sometimes they're just what we're seeing through the, the Access Network program is that some of them are just 
a little bit of an attempt of attention and capital away from being a really scalable business. And I'll say lastly, Colleen, is big companies have a lot of power. They spend a ton of money on suppliers and, and vendors and being able to look and challenge their spend and say, should we dedicate, should we truly dedicate a group of dollars that we are going to spend to to this community and how do we do it and make people accountable for that? I think those are the things that uh, sort of come to mind that we can do to really make this a sustainable impact. So are you talking about basically race-based shopping and race-based investing? I mean, if you're saying that uh, people have to shop through a social justice lens, it means there needs to be a directory of black minority-owned businesses, and you look it up and you say, okay, I'm going to support a black business today, and you shop there because of who it's owned by. I would say it a little bit differently. I, I, I don't, you know, I wouldn't say the term race based, even though, you know, we're talking about black and Hispanic entrepreneurs. Obviously, I would say how important is diversity to your culture? Just period. And, and you've got to challenge that at the top first. Some companies may say, hey, look, it doesn't hit our agenda, it doesn't hit our top agenda. But I think particularly what we're experiencing right now, the volatility that we're experiencing, the need for differential investment, the need for differential products to address the issues that we're facing as a nation in general, just begs the need for just diversity and inclusion to begin with. And I think it really starts there. And based on the company, I would never go to companies and say, hey, look, you need to buy from a black business. I would say, well, what is your what is, what? What are you trying to accomplish? How important is diversity is, is to you? And then are you spending, if you look at your dollar spend, is that, are those dollars really representative of the community that you serve? And if it isn't, then you've got to challenge that. If it is, then maybe you're in good shape. Yeah, there, we actually do have something like that in the Seattle area. It's called the Intentionalist, and it does list veteran-owned, women-owned, black-owned, Latino. You know, you can you can shop however you'd like, whenever you'd like, uh, if that's your choice. Now, you're talking a lot about the importance of diversity, which which brings up the Supreme Court case that's being heard right now about affirmative action. Do you have thoughts on that and how it might uh, interplay with a diverse workforce? You know, I think sometimes, you know, we, we spend a lot of time. The law is important and the policies are important and politics is important because it comes to play in terms of mandating certain things. But I think before we get to the point where we're thinking about mandating, I really do truly believe that we've got to come back to, you know, what do we really want as an organization? I'll give you an example. So, for example, my, my kids, you know, I've got kids who are who are late teenagers and, and my kids, even though they're not in the workforce per se yet, they've had jobs, but they're not in the workforce. They're starting to think about, like, what companies do they actually work for? So I think as, as companies start to think about even their human capital, they've got to start really thinking, forget about policies and laws, but what are our missions and how do we want to make sure that we get the right people to come in and work for us? So the younger generation are starting to put pressures on big businesses themselves in terms of, hey, look, we just want to understand the purpose. Now, that purpose may not mean that you're shopping with black, you're uh, buying from black or Hispanic, but we just want to make sure that there's a social purpose associated with this company. So I say the combination of sort of the younger folks if you will, and then you know, you look at the leaders at the tone at the top and then the mission of the companies is really, really where our focus. And then, you know, sort of beyond that, yes, you have policy, you have laws that will govern things. But I think it really, really starts with what is the culture and the mission that you're trying to drive as an organization. Lee Henderson is with the EY Entrepreneurs Access Network. Thanks, Lee. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.